Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Okay, uh, tonight's reader is Patricia Engel. Um, I know Patty personally, so I just I was going to get that right out of the way. Um, but uh, I feel really fortunate in that I read Patty's first book, her collection of stories before I knew her, and I was really just blown away. I mean, the exuberance um, that I found in that collection, um, the, 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 just the, the, the confidence that she had as, as a writer, the voice of the characters is really um, unbelievable, and um, as if to sort of uh, reaffirm that, um, it got amazing praise from the likes of Michiko Kakutani, um, who said that, uh, described her writing as being, um, having a voice that's immediate, unsentimental, and disarmingly direct. Um, similarly, uh, Juno Diaz said uh, her ability to pierce the hearts of her crazy ass characters, uh, to fracture a moment into its elementary particles of yearning, cruelty, love, and confusion will leave you breathless. Um, and now with the debut novel, um, it's not love, it's just Paris. Uh, she's actually done it again. This time it's Edwidge Danicat who's singing her praises, uh, choosing um, a passage from the novel uh, for the Atlantics by the Heart a series, which if you're familiar with is where they ask authors to choose some of their favorite uh, passages in literature ever. So that's kind of not faint praise in the least. Um, so. With that being said, without any sort of further ado, allow me to introduce Patricia Engel. Hello. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you, David. I know David from Miami, so it's really nice to see him here. And he's one of the reasons why I came here. So thank you. And thanks to Skylight Books for having me. It's a, this is a store that I've heard a lot of wonderful things about. And I'm really pleased to be reading here for the first time, and hopefully not for the last. And thanks to all of you for coming out. I know this is such a great city with so many things to do on an evening, and you've chosen to be here. So uh, I'm very grateful to you. And there's a couple people I know here. 
my cousin, a friend from Paris, and Joe, and uh, and, and Yijun. So I uh, thank you guys for coming. It's great to see you. And those who I haven't yet met, I'm very happy to, to meet you soon. So I'm going to read from my new novel. It's not love, it's just Paris. Um, to tell you a little bit about it. It follows um, a young woman named Alita, who's um, the daughter of a pair of Colombian orphans who've um, done well for themselves in the United States. And she's got two brothers, and she's just finished her university studies at the age of 20, and going to Paris is something that she's looked forward to all her life. And she's about to go on to pr pursue studies in diplomacy. So she goes to Paris uh, to study, work on her language skills, and she takes a room in the house of a countess named Seraphine who's sort of fallen on hard times and has um, made it a bit of a business to rent out rooms in her house to girls from around the world. And the house has become well known for that, and it's known as the House of Stars in Paris in the seventh arrondissement. So the novel sort of follows Lida as she um, embarks on friendships with these girls who live in the house, and also, of course, as she meets somebody in Paris, a young man by the name of Kato, with whom she falls in love, and he comes from his own complicated background. He's the son of a rather notorious right-wing politician, very anti-immigrant politician, and he's also suffering from a, a serious illness. So normally what I do is I read from the opening of the novel just to give you an idea of how it starts and where it's going, but I think I'm going to, to read something a little different today that I hope you like. It's um, from a bit deeper into it, and... Um, so here we have Lida, who's um, out with um, one of her housemates, a Spanish girl named Maribel, who's um, an art prodigy studying in the, the School of Fine Arts in Paris, and she's, she's a bit out of sorts because she's having an affair with her married professor. So I think that's all you need to know for this, this one, okay? Maribel was often depressed due to Florian's unwillingness to leave Elisa. She'd spend a string of nights at the studio, followed by a week as a bed-bound slug with Florent Pagny's Savoir Aimé playing on repeat on her CD player, until Florian appeared at the House of Stars, pleading through her closed door that she'd f and she'd finally let him in. I'd hear them through the thin wall that separated our bedrooms, the sound of weight shifting on her metal bed frame, the headboard slamming against the plaster wall, the sound of promises, his telling her that he loved her and her inevitable, desperate questioning growing louder and louder, then why won't you leave her? That week, he had a new policy of non-response. Tarantina said it was meant to keep her hopeful, and hope needs very little fuel. She called Maribel an idiot for making demands. She said only the stupidest women think an affair can exist anywhere outside the bedroom. She'd been with her musician for years already, and his wife had yet to catch on. He wasn't the only married man on her roster either, but Tarantino was as discreet as a tomb, and her men knew this, which always kept them coming back. Maribel took medication for her frequent spiraling emotional states and per her doctor's recommendation long walks through the Latin Quarter that were meant to clear her mind. Lately, I was the only one willing to join her. 
We went to browse the stalls of the Bukinist, and while Maribel checked out the book bins, looking for interesting cover artwork, I eavesdropped on a brown-bearded American expat in a Navy fisherman's sweater at the next stall over as he told a pair of Mexican backpackers in French-spattered English how he'd come to Paris 25 years earlier as a philosophy student, but had fallen in love with both a woman and the city and never returned home. Now he operated a stall selling Belle Epoque postcards and painting reproductions, but he was really a raconteur, he said, a storyteller, a lover of words and the language of the soul. I thought of my father. Once before my graduation, I'd mentioned the possibility of changing direction and not studying diplomacy as I'd been planning. Bobby thought I, I meant I'd join him and Santhi in the family business, but when I said I was considering something more creative, he shook his head as if I'd been terribly mistaken and said there was no need for that. I was already an artist by blood. All immigrants are artists because they create a life, a future, from nothing but a dream. The immigrant's life is art in its purest form. That's why God has special sympathy for immigrants, because Diosito was the first artist in Jesus, un pobre desplazado. It's not the same, Papi, I tried, but he shook his head. But of course it is, mijita. All your life is a work of art. A painting is not a painting, but the way you live each day. A song is not a song, but the words you share with the people you love. A book is not a book, but the choices you make every day trying to be a decent person. When we were on our way again, Maribel looked to the American inside. A thousand idiots come to Paris every day thinking they're artists, but hardly any really have it in them. Look at me. I was born and bred for this shit, and I don't even even have it in me. Come on, Maribel. Everybody knows you're talented, I said. And it was true, because everyone also knew that Maribel was a third-generation painter of commercially viable lineage, with a greater chance of making money from it than the majority of her peers. Basta, Lira. I know what I'm saying. I'm a great imitator. I'm learned. Not original. But people can't tell the difference. She talked as we crossed through Saint-Germain and seared through cigarette after cigarette, rambling that she wanted to disappear, dissolve into the earth like spit. By the time we reached Rue du Cherche-Midi, she'd worked herself into a disquieted frenzy, stopping along the wall of a building to gather forces for the rest of the walk home. A green BMW pulled up along the curb in front of us. Its windows rolled down, and a man in one of those checked shirts with the initials sewed into the pocket that Loic owned by the dozen leaned across the passenger seat and waved us over. I thought he was asking for directions, so I stepped forward. I'm looking for something tropical, he said. I assumed Tropical was the name of a bar or a restaurant in the area and said I hadn't heard of it, but he laughed and pointed to Maribel on the wall behind me. How much for both of you? He could have been a father, a doctor, or an executive. With his suit jacket neatly folded across the passenger seat, According to that gold wedding band twinkling in the window frame, he was also a husband. How much, he rubbed his fingers together to make sure that I understood he meant money. I walked over to the car, slow, slinky, the way I imagined the Avenue Foch girls did when getting ready to climb into a car. I bent down to the window, smiling a smile that did not belong to me, but to some other girl with solid gold cojones. That depends on what you want. How much for the ass? He was practically salivating. I took a drag on my cigarette and turned my hips toward him. This ass? He nodded, showing me a wide, symmetrical smile that must have cost a fortune. I leaned into the window. This ass will cost you extra. 
I grabbed his wrist and pressed it firmly on the window frame with one hand, using my free hand to rub my cigarette into the top of his palm while he squealed in pain, trying to pull back his hand, but I was overcome with strength and held on tightly, singeing his pink skin with my cigarette. He called me putan, salope, petasconas, and many other words I didn't know while I let him burn. Maribel finally grabbed my arm and we ran from the top of Cherchemidi across the intersection down to Rudubac before the gendarmes at the Varenne post stopped us, demanding to know why two girls were running in a neighborhood not known for velocity. We're just going home, I told them. We weren't but a few meters from our green doors. What's that accent? asked the second gendarme. I could tell he was the one in charge. There is always one in charge. It's not any kind of accent. It's the way I talk. Why were you running? I looked at Maribel, breathless and not much hope, help, and ne neither of us felt there was any point in telling them the truth. We're just going home, I pointed down the road. We live in the house of stars. Show me your papers. We just stepped out for some air, I started, ready to negotiate, but he shook his head and held his finger in the air as if determining the wind. Your papers, now. I'd been warned that I should carry my documentation, though everyone in the neighborhood knew about Seraphine's place and that it was full of girls from all over. But we both had only bank and metro cards on us, which didn't prove our legitimacy enough, so they fined us 500 francs each in cash, which they told us that we could withdraw from the bank machine around the corner. How convenient for you, I told the officer, who followed to make sure we didn't make a run for it. You should thank me for not arresting you. Foreigners should have their papers on them at all times. After we handed over the bills, the bossier gendarme said, if it's true you live in the house of stars, I want to see you walk into it. They followed us as we made our way to our address, muttering about our cools and observing as I typed the security passcode into the keypad and pushed open the door to the entrance court. They watched from the sidewalk as we opened the door and crossed the courtyard, and I produced a key and opened our way into the house. As we stepped into the foyer, we turned to face the guards and flipped them off, I with the American middle finger and Maribel Spanish style with two fingers and the back of the hand. The gendarmes responded by sticking out their tongues and grabbing their crotches, thrusting in our direction, all of which I'm sure you know translates directly. <laughs> So, thanks. Thank you. So I'm going to read you a little bit more of a romantic section now. So as I, as I mentioned, Lira um, meets a, a young guy named Cato. And after a series of events where they run into each other um, and have, you know, some awkward run-ins, um, they deliberately spend some time together, put it that way. So um, this is one time when he's, uh, he's finally come back from Normandy where he lives in a little house by the sea to come visit her in Paris. I met him at Gare Saint-Lazare just after sunset. It was dark and cold, even through my warmest jacket, a knit hat and scarf with only a patch of face open to the air. I was disappointed by the size of his bag, big enough for only two or three days of travel. We kissed in the taxi all the way to the 7th, had dinner at Le Perron, and walked to the House of Stars, which was quiet, all of the others out for a Friday night, only the sound of Cyrus' television buzzing on the floor above us. I let him 
into my bedroom ahead of me while I closed the door and leaned against the door frame. He dropped his bag on my desk and looked at the photographs taped to the wall, stepping in to get a closer look at my family. I like your room, he said. Strange to hear him say it, as I felt he'd been there before. There's not much space, I said. My bed looked very small pushed into the corner, and I suddenly felt improper. I'd wondered how this would go. Would we fall onto the bed in mad passion, or would there be hesitation? In his house, there was the buffer of an extra bedroom, but here it was my small room and the even smaller bed. Then, the quiet embarrassment of changing out of my clothes and into a t-shirt and shorts. He sensed my clumsy modesty and turned away without my asking. I wanted to be like Tarantina with a wardrobe of glamorous nightclothes, walking around in her lingerie bearing her body without inhib inhibition. But I hid myself, sliding into the bed and pulling the blanket over me as he removed his shirt, and I took in his lithe body, almost hairless thin skin, muscles long and liquid, his chest slightly concave. He kept on his jeans, reaching over to turn off the nightstand light, lifting the blanket only enough to slip in beside me. We lay like planks, my body adjusted to his warm arms against mine in the purest blindness of night. The room came into soft focus, dots of stars over the rooftops behind the windows, blue moonlight hitting the corners of the room. I, t I turned my head enough to see his profile, the bridge of his nose, the rise and dips of his mouth and chin sloping down to the plateau of his chest. I held my breath, trying to be inconspicuous in my desire, but by the next breath he was above me and then the removal of my shirt, the jeans, the underclothes. We stayed in bed for days, only leaving to refill a water bottle at the bedside, steal leftover food from the kitchen or use the bathroom. The maids knocked. The other girls spoke to me through the door. I told them to go away. Violetta, the maid, shouted through the hinges that she needed to clean, but I liked the smell of us filling the room, opening the balcony doors each morning for a flush of air. Loic banged on the door, demanding to know if I was alive, and I finally opened it a crack and saw Tarantina and Maribel watching from behind him, Yes, I'm alive, I felt Kato's hand on mine, pulling me back to him, never more alive. We told each other stories, filling the emptiness of the years spent waiting. I told him of my family, my race through school, running on guilt for the debt of my parents' hardships, my life a project in honoring their sacrifices, how I never felt that my life belonged only to me, but to them, and I sometimes resented it, which made me ashamed. I told him about my brothers, one born with a warrior, Gene, born for an army my mother would never let him join, and the other, a wounded soul, deemed so helpless that one of our dogs, a German shepherd named Ramses, had been specially trained to watch over him so that he wouldn't hurt himself. He told me that as a boy, he'd had a German shepherd too. His mother had named her Anastasia, and she'd slept at his side, licking his fingers to wake him for school, but his father hated animals, and when he visited, Anastasia was forced to stay outside. Kato sneaked her in from the front yard to sleep in his room. When his father came in the morning and saw the dog on the bed, he took it by the collar, dragged it down the stairs, put it in his car, and drove away. When Kato asked what happened to Anastasia, he was always told different things, that his father gave the dog away to another family, that he left her by the road, that he took the dog to a field and shot her. The last possibility, he said, the most likely. I tried to conceal my shock as he pressed further into my embrace. We were still new to each other, transcribing the weight of each other's flesh to our bones. 
the eyes and the wounds the the eyes and the wounds and the longing living beneath them would always be new until we were old and by then being old would be new I ran my palm from his chest over the ridges of his ribs to his navel. My fingers dipped into a crescent scar in its orbit. I loved scars. I was covered in them from countless falls as a distracted child, chasing my brother through the woods. What is the scar from? I was sick as a child, he said, his eyes suddenly heavy with what looked like fatigue or regret. My throat closed and I became very skinny, so they inserted a tube there. A tube? To feed me. He put his finger over mine, slipping it over the scar. What did you have? Bad lungs. Like asthma? In a way. I kissed his mouth. I told him we were all sick as children, ill with childhood, invalids in a world of indelicate adults with the wrong prognoses and cures. We made love again. Afterward, he said, as if it were a long time ago. I remember when I saw you by the torch that night. You were wearing that blouse with the dragon on your back. It was borrowed. I knew it. By the way you wore it, I knew it wasn't yours. I wondered, why is she wearing a shirt that doesn't belong to her? That's why I talk to you. I never speak to strange people, especially to a girl standing alone on a street corner in the middle of the night, in this city that's only looking for trouble. But I saw the dragon before I saw your face, and when I walked beside you on the bridge and saw your eyes so suspicious of me, I knew I liked you. I'm still suspicious of you, I said. I still like you very much. There was something in his sweet first impressions, those willful projections. I wondered if we were whom the other hoped. He hadn't yet said when he would leave, so I pretended he was here forever. There was no morning, only this perpetual hour, this room warm with our breath and sweat, these sheets pushed off the bed, the silence of two bare bodies. Thanks. So uh, so that's it for me. Um, <laughs> so now we have time for whatever you want. If you uh, if you have questions or comments or you know you want to complain, it's okay too. What? Spoilers. Yeah. Whatever you want. Or we can just call it a day. What? Yeah, Hillary. <laughs> Yeah, people said the same thing with my first book, and my first book is really different from this book. Um, I I always like kind of joke that I'll have to write like ten books before people will believe I write fiction. <laughs> um, so, but anyway, of course, I wrote the book, so it does come from me. Um, the obvious similarities, you know, um, are the the that I'm Colombian, like my protagonists tend to be, and I did live in Paris, and I did live in the house of a countess, but the um, the similarities end there, and the story is entirely fictional. Just to give you an example, um, the countess here f is a very prominent character, right? In real life, the countess in the house where I lived died two weeks after I moved in. So this countess is entirely invented, as are all the characters in the house and the plot and the story itself. So it's kind of like, you know, maybe um, I'm inspired by, by certain, the set of certain memories, but, but then, you know, the fiction th takes over and, and the story becomes its own, its own beast. 
Yes. Um, so this novel was kind of like floating around my mind for um, at least 10 years and I don't want to call them drafts because they never became fully formed drafts. It was more like there were maybe five or six false starts of this novel over a period of 10 years before this actual manuscript came to be what it was. Um, I would say it took, um, it took three years, maybe a little less, maybe between two and three years. and. Um, I started it in um, maybe like September of 2009. Yeah, and I finished it. Well, I turned in the first draft to my publisher in August of 2011. Yeah, but I mean, there were a lot of drafts before and after. <laughs> so what was the impetus? finally sit down and actually write an idea or this, like, uh, you, know, you have the idea to do it and you have the plots in your mind and you're just you kind of sit down and finally... I don't know. Writing is kind of like a, f a form of mental illness. <laughs> like, you, you don't really have a choice. Um, certain stories just sort of, like, claim you. There's other stories I've always had, you know, sort of floating around that have never sort of stepped forward the way that these books have. Um, with Vita, I have to say, the actual the actual truth behind that is that it was um, there was never any ambition in that book. That book was my hobby. Um, I was actually writing another book, and then um, to have fun because the other book was killing me. Um, I would write these stories on the side and that was it. it. I never had any intention of really doing anything with them and then I, I, I had three, then four, then five, then six and I realized they were sort of becoming a whole, a whole life of a, an individual and then, and then I accidentally had a book. The book, uh, I killed the book. I slaughtered that book eventually. Um, actually, it's a funny story. That book, um, a little bit of shop talk here. My my uh, my agent actually shopped around that first book with um, with Vita, and then um, you know right before the papers were signed, my editor said, "So what's next? You know what's what's going to be your next thing?" And I said, "Well, you know I have this book about this uh, girl goes to live in the house of a countess. Haven't started, had not written a paragraph yet." And she goes, we want that one instead. So we did a little swap at the 11th hour. And that's what happened. And I never thought about that other book again. <laughs> yes? Uh, I noticed that there are uh, some uh, authors that go to Paris and they write like James Baldwin. Was there like some kind of inspiration for you when you were there? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question. I love James Baldwin. And Giovanni's Room is one of my favorite cats. Uh, I said cats because my my cat's name is Giovanni. <laughs> I was gonna say it's one of my favorite books. So um, <laughs> that's so yeah. James Baldwin is is uh, you know very close to my heart. But but also for those sort of uh, literary uh, francophiles, just kind of like a hidden code to this book of sort of like my my heroes. Um, for example. 
I'm a, I'm like a devoted fan of Camus, who is who you know I used a, a line from one of his journals for the epigraph. Um, none of this is spoilers, what I'm not tell you, but. Um, so the address where Cato lives in Paris is on Rue Vano, which is actually an address where uh, Camus lived in an apartment ad adjacent to the home of André Gide. And also in the first pages of the novel, um, it's mentioned that there was a Russian um, writer who committed suicide, who you know is related to the suicide of the Countess's husband. That's Roman Gary, because the, the fictional address of the Countess's house is across the street from where Roman Gary, who is married to the actress Jean Seberg, is a one of my favorite writers, where he lived. So I sort of, in my mind, incorporated this arc, this map, this geographical map, and into uh, into the the novel in a lot of ways. And um, there were a few books that I sort of like internalized over you know the past decade and a half that I feel um, were like the godparents of this book, and and. Um, there would be like The Lover by Marguerite Dura, The Life Before Us by Roman Gary, um, Fan Fan by Alexandre Jardin, Giovanni's Room, um, The Four Chambered Heart by Anna Isnin, a whole bunch. Does that answer your question or? Okay. And my cat's name is Giovanni. <laughs> Yeah, and I had a cat named Kemu who unfortunately passed away. Any, uh, <laughs> people that influence you now, more current. Um, yeah, I'm 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 influenced by everything. I have to say, people always ask like, what writers influence you? But I'm I'm equally influenced by art and music and film. Um, so. Um, uh, Edwige Nantikat, who was mentioned, um, she's she's uh, she's one of my favorites. I love Sherman Alexie. Um, who else? Her writers. Um, she's. I read a lot of uh, literature in translation to um, Philippe Grimper, who's actually he's a psychologist who also just like accidentally became a writer. Um, I really love his work and. I don't know, tell me somebody, David. You know my influences, <laughs> but I'm, I'm forgetting them. <laughs> you know, obviously. Oh. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I didn't like his book, Drown. It seemed like very direct, just like your Vida. Um, yeah, people try to tend to draw comparisons because we're both Latin from New Jersey. <laughs> like, like we're the only ones, uh, you know. <laughs> but, but, uh, uh, but of course, he's he's a hero. But unfortunately, because I'm, I'm um, older than I look, I didn't have the benefit of growing up on his literature. Um, I wasn't, unfortunately, I didn't read uh, Drown until I was in graduate school, 27 years old. So, um, so I, as much as I would love to claim it as an influence, I, I can't. Um, but he's a hero, undoubtedly. Yeah. Yes. Um, a lot of writers write short stories or novels, and some write poetry. But uh, have you done both now? Do you feel like you get the same amount of satisfaction as you've done in the writing period? 
I don't think there's any satisfaction at all that comes from writing. Uh, what? No. Um, it's weird. It's like, oh, there's the book, and now it has like a hard cover on it. But um, you, I always feel like, oh, now I gotta write another one. You know, that's that's the real feeling that comes. But it, but. Um, no, I mean, Vida, Vida for me was, like I said, that, that's a book that was truly born out of love because I never had any intention of it becoming anything. There was no ambition in that book whatsoever. Um, when it, so I can say that um, that's the book I, I wish had existed when I was, you know, um, coming into my own as a writer and reader. Um, and that's how I approach I approach my writing for this book too, so that satisfaction I do get. I, I feel like, oh, I, I wrote, I wrote another one of the books that I wish I had, you know, and maybe someone else will will enjoy that. But that satisfaction passes very quickly. <laughs> yeah. 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 The process changes constantly, and that, that's also a learning experience. Is that you, you can't really have a process, like a rigid process, or it will fail you sooner or later. You have to adapt. The book will kind of tell you what it needs. So what I did for this book. In this incarnation, I can say is I originally, as I had all these ideas, like a, a novel is a, a big sloppy gelatinous mess. Like you constantly feel it like slipping away from you. So, in order to start, I felt like I really needed to slow myself down. I typed very fast on the computer, and I felt like that was a problem. You know that I, I really needed to to understand every word I was putting on the page before I got to that like frantic typing phase. So I, I wrote by hand probably like the first 150 pages until I felt like I had my character's voice and I had you know the people she knew down like they were really starting to, to come to life. Then you know my hands started hurting and I was writing faster and faster so I moved to the computer but that's when I felt like I had a hold on it you know. Um, so um, I wrote, you know, a full draft, and then um, the the revisions were complete overhauls. Complete overhauls. I mean, the first draft was a hundred pages longer. You know, so it's not like you just cut pages. It's a lot of, you know, a lot of sculpting involved too. Um, so. But probably the only the only consistent in the process is like you're trying to sustain the obsession for it because once you kind of lose the obsession for a book, that's it. It falls apart. It's gone. You lost it. It like ran away down the street, and you'll never see it again. So you have to sort of find ways to cultivate that obsession so that you don't forget why you're, it's important to you, why you're writing it, why you care, why anyone should care. Um, so does that answer? Yeah. yeah. So, all right, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming.
You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.